0: Psalm 45, and we begin there at verse 1. Hear now the word of our God. To the chief musician, upon Shoshanim, for the sons of Korah, Mashko, a song of loves. My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee forever. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, and with thy glory and thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride prosperously, because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore, God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad. King's daughters were among thy honorable women. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in gold of over. Thus far the reading of God's word. and May he bless it to our hearing this evening. I won't really begin with any introduction other than a simple question. As we come to Psalm 45, we'll see here that, of course, the psalmist has in view a king. And there is no question... That the king that is in view is in some sense, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, No one denies, really, if they hold to the inspiration of scripture, that the psalmist has Christ in view. And we know that, of course, because of what we read in Hebrews 1. Unto the Son, says the writer of the Hebrews, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. The writer of the Hebrews quoting from the sixth verse of Psalm 45. The Apostle has no difficulty whatsoever in applying these words to Jesus Christ. To the Son that he has in view in Hebrews 1. The question is then not, is Christ? In Psalm 45, the question is, how is he present? How are we supposed to see Christ in this Psalm? And some would say, perhaps, Christ is here under the sight, under the shadow of King Solomon. Of course we know That at various stages, both David and Solomon represented in their person, and in their function in Israel, something Christ. We were supposed to look, as it were, through them, see them as a sign, and see Christ on the other side, so to speak. Is that what we have in Psalm 45? Or, as others maintain, is this a psalm that looks, not to the signposts, Not to a shadow, not to a type, but as a psalm that looks directly, and more more importantly, exclusively to Jesus Christ the King. Now, friend, before I go any further, I'll simply tell you that the way that I see Psalm 45 and the way that I'll convey it to you this evening and in the subsequent evenings to follow is that it is a psalm that exclusively looks to Jesus Christ. There is no other king, either typically or otherwise, in this home. And why do we say that? Well, friend, it's not Solomon, first of all, because as you look at our text before us, you'll notice that the king who's in view here is a warrior king. And Solomon, according to the inspiration of God's spirit, is not a warrior king. Solomon, he had peace on all sides. 1 Kings 4. And secondly, as... Folks, look at Psalm 45. They assume that because it's a royal wedding, this must then indicate Solomon's marriage to Pharaoh's daughter. Now, friend, I don't need to tell you, but I will anyhow that if that's the case, we have an incredible contradiction. Note how the writer in 1 Kings looks at that marriage. Solomon loved many strange women. He then includes the daughter of Pharaoh... Of the nations concerning which the Lord had said, ye shall not go into them, neither shall they come into you. It would be a striking thing, wouldn't it? For this psalm that is part of Israel's praise to in any sense extol or laud a marriage that was expressly forbidden by the word of God. But putting it more positively, I want you to notice how this psalm speaks of the kingdom in view. The psalmist has no difficulty, no issue in applying to him the highest and the greatest appellations or descriptions. Note what he's described as. He is the fairest of the children of men. He is most gracious. His name is mighty. That's what the psalmist says of this king. And then, of course, when you come to verses 6 and 7 you have that expressed statement that the one who wields a scepter in Psalm 45 is called nothing less than deity. That the throne that the psalmist has in view in Psalm 45 is an everlasting throne. And holding those two themes together, God, who is everlasting, is the one wielding the scepter, according to the psalmist in this psalm. I want you to notice too, friends, that in this psalm, This king is infallibly victorious and infallibly righteous. There is no point at all. No point at all where the psalmist wonders, Will the man lose the plot, so to speak? No, he really is a righteous and victorious king. And all I need to remind you too is, friend, This is a psalm that is solemnly part of this psalm's praise. And who? Who but the Lord Jesus Christ who is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, should be praised when the church gathers. A friend, what i suggested to you is something that is not only part and parcel of Christian historical tradition, it's something that even Jewish expositors in the ancient world recognize as well. This is a psalm that looks only to Messiah can only speak of Messiah, and can only speak of Messiah as he is wedded solemnly to his people, to Israel, the true Israel of God. And so, friends, as we look at this text, it's crucial that we see here that it is Christ, who alone, who alone can be the king that we have in the text. Now, as we open this particular song, I, I expect that we will be in here, as God permits for several months. And so, my aim this morning, is sim- this evening is simply to introduce to you um, its major themes. And to do that, we begin with the superscription. That's the what you have here to the chief musician upon Shoshanim, for the sons of Kura Mashko, a song of loves. Uh, the word there, Shoshanim, literally translated, is lilies. It could refer, as some commentators say, to either an instrument or to a tune, but But God willing, in a few weeks' time, we'll take up what that perhaps means um, in a future time. But I want us to focus instead on the next word there. mashkil. Translated literally, it means teaching or instruction. It's a striking thing because then what follows is, this is teaching or instruction that comes to us as a song of loves. I want you to notice that that is a, a That is something that belongs to this psalm that no other psalm actually has in its superscription. This only is called a psalm of loves. As you look at this text, I want you to notice again that what the psalmist has in view is something that pertains to corporate worship. Whatever love is here allotted is something that belongs, says the spirit-inspired penman, to the worship of God's people. Now as we look then at the first verse, we find here the psalmist describes himself, it's a striking thing. You'll notice as we go through Psalm 45 that there are various foci, there are various people that are looked on. And the first verse begins, as it were, with a cross-section of the psalmist himself. He tells us, my heart is inviting. The word heart there, of course, a Hebrewism that tells us that he's talking about the whole man, his inmost being. His inmost being is inditing. That word inditing there means to be stirred, even to be boiled. His inmost being, as it were, is really and thoroughly stirred about his subject. Well, what is his work? I want you to notice here, he is inditing good matter. I speak of things which I have made. The, the word there, good matter" is really, literally, good words. Um, as it is in the Scottish metrical Version, he is bringing forth a goodly thing. It describes both the subject and the words that he's speaking. And he says here that his tongue is the pen of a ready writer. The, the idea there is that he's a scribe, and the word ready there has both in view the idea that he is skillful and he's prompt. He's not tarrying at all, And he's quite knowledgeable about that which he writes. There is a marriage, in other words, between this kind of affection and discretion that we'll see throughout the psalm. But then, as we come to the theme, he tells us in this first verse that he writes, Touching the king, regarding or concerning the king, the son, the son of Hebrews 1. The express image of the Father sitting at the right hand who alone has accomplished redemption. The King that he has in view here then is not Jesus Christ, Son of God in his essential kingship. But Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son of Man in his mediatorial kingship. Jesus Christ as King as he is also Redeemer. Now friend, holding all of these things together, we could paraphrase this first verse thus. The psalmist is saying, really, from the stirring of my inmost being, I speak excellent words about the divine incarnate king. My tongue is adept and affected like a great scribe. Now as we come to apply the text, friend, I want you to notice that of course the psalmist is preparing us to think about the kingship of this Christ. To think about an enthroned Messiah. But even as he does so. Is it not striking that he begins with himself. And we might ask the question why. Why not immediately go. To the principal theme. Why not immediately go to the one. Whom you are so eager to write about. Well, oh, friend like any character in scripture. Of course the psalmist gives us an example. An example that we ought To emulate. He sets before us a picture of his own heart and that heart really ought to be replicated among those who approach the Lord in worship today. But I want you to notice that as he's a psalmist, as he is the inspired penman who is giving to the church of God her manual of praise, there's even a greater sense in which he sets before us that pattern that ought to be emulated. What I mean by that is we are, as we worship God with these very words, called to emulate not only the words, not only the context of corporate worship, but we are called to emulate, lest we sing a lie of ourselves, his very disposition that we have here in the first verse. In other words, friend, if we would sing this aright, if we would think of this aright, the psalmist gives us first and foremost a picture of what our hearts must be like, the disposition that is required for us to do this solemn work. And so, without a moment, that brings us to our principal theme this evening, and that is that those who are witnesses of this kingship—not those who see it, but those who would testify to it, as the psalmist does. Witnesses must possess an affectionate knowledge of Christ's kingship. Witnesses must possess an affectionate knowledge of Christ's kingship. And I want to consider that as this knowledge is at once instructed, inclined, and in some sense intense. And so take first of all its instruction. As we look at the superscription, we're told immediately that this is praise, but it's praise that is very clearly mixed with pedagogy. The man is not only giving to us how we are to worship, but he is also instructing us, teaching us as we would do, as we would do so. There is a reciprocity, a, a very real relationship between instruction and the praise of God. And this psalm is one instance. Psalm 32 is another, where the people of God, as they sing, are being taught. But even beyond that, I want you to notice, friends, that the psalmist is very clear. He's not directionless in his thinking. He, he's not purely enthusiastic without any kind of cerebral moorings. He's writing about something specific. He's writing things about the king. And he's a ready writer. Friend, that immediately tells us that this witness to the kingship of the Messiah is not a mindless or thoughtless enthusiast. In other words, he's not a man who is simply engaged or excited. But he's a man who really knows his subject. He's a man who has propositional truth, if you like, set before him. And that is his focus. That is his theme. A friend, as you look at this text, of course we need to see here that he's not just writing here for us as it were, a system of doctrine related to the kingship of Christ. He is thinking more narrowly about this kingship. He's not thinking only about the reality of this kingship. But even as I read these words to you already, that first section of this psalm is concerned chiefly with the glory of this kingship. And so the knowledge that this man has is not just that Christ is a king... Not just that he is as mediator, endowed with dominion, but it's even more than that. He knows the glory. He's conscious of those aspects of his kingship that are genuinely majestic. That's his focus. And beloved, as we look at this text, we can't miss it. Here we have the example, an example of one who has been instructed in the majesty of Christ. Who thinks clearly about Christ as he is majestic. Witnesses must know the glory of Christ's dominion. I want you to think about this, friend, as you look at the text. If you were to ask the psalmist that question that Christ asks in Matthew's gospel. What think ye of Christ? Friend, what would he say? The answer is quite clear. He would say, I think much of Jesus Christ. I think much of the King who I'm so eager to write about. Whose glory I'm so earnest to extol. Why? Well, friend, note how the psalmist describes himself as he thinks about the things of God. I will remember thee upon my bed, says the psalmist in Psalm 63. And meditate on Thee in the night watches. Take Psalm 119. Mine eyes prevent the night watches that I might meditate in thy word. Friend, how did he become a ready writer? How did he become one who was really skilled in knowing not only Christ, but the glories of Christ? How was he one that really knew not just that Christ was king, but knew something of the majesty of that kingship? Friend, the answer is always in Christianity. Meditation. Meditation leads the man really to think deeply about these things. And how earnest is that meditation? The man here as we find through the Psalter is a man who is earnest, preventing the night watches, so to speak, that he might pour over these things. How does one become a ready writer? How does one know really the depth of the majesty of these things? A friend, the scriptures fall out with one with really one voice the believer must be one who is engaged in meditation and certainly our psalmist is I want you to notice of course that knowledge and meditation are not identical Um, but in this case of course the psalmist is thinking engaged in reflecting on propositional truths that he sees from the scriptures concerning Christ well, then, what of the subject? Friend, I want you to notice as we think of the kingship of Christ, we can think of this kingship in two ways. And the psalmist actually presents both ways to us in the psalm. And without getting too far ahead of ourselves, let me say to you that the way the psalmist sees the dominion of Christ, he sees its glories both in its terms, as we might say, in its physical terms and in its moral. Take, take the physical aspects of this dominion, first of all. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end, says the prophet Isaiah. The psalmist has that same dominion in view. It's, it, we already read, is it, a, it is an everlasting, it is an unlimited rule. This is the kingship that the psalmist contemplates. A, a kingship that has really no borders. A kingship that is unchallenged. A kingship that will be unstinted throughout time. As he thinks of this kingship, friend, note how radically different that is from all the other kinds of kingship we know on this earth. This is an utterly unique dominion. And how much is the psalmist given to contemplate this? His is an everlasting throne. All the other thrones of the nations, how quickly are they led into convulsion? How quickly are they overthrown? Not so. The throne in our text. And friend, how often do we find kings relinquishing dominion over areas? How often do we find borders curtailed? Not so this dominion. Not so this kingdom. This kingdom is pervasive. Again, the words, the words of the prophet, his there shall be an increase of his government and peace. There shall be no end to it. That means temporally and spatially. There is no border to this dominion. As Abraham Piper put it. We could see in this text. There is not a square inch. In the whole domain of our human existence. Over which Christ who is sovereign over all. Does not cry. Mine. Friend contemplate that just for a moment. The dominion of Christ is pervasive; His kingship uncurtailed. And not only is that is that the case; it is also invincible. Take what the prophet Daniel gives to us: the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. This is a kingdom that triumphs over every other. A dominion that is absolutely secure. One that is possessed of omnipotence. Utterly unique. But then, friends, take the moral aspects of this dominion. The psalmist extols the righteousness of our king. And again, looking at Daniel, you see the parallel. He has this kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. Friend the king that is in view here. Wields a scepter. That is unfailing. And is uncorrupt. It is spotless in every regard. There is no taint. There is no sin of sin. It is holy. The kingdoms of this world. Revelation 11. Are become the kingdoms of our Lord. And of his Christ. His kingdom is really a kingdom that is holy. A holy, a truly a holy nation. A holy kingdom. And beloved, as you look at this, this is also a kingdom. A dominion. That is replete with goodness. Take how the prophet, how rather Solomon speaks of it in Proverbs 20. Mercy and truth preserve the king and his throne is upholden by mercy. He's speaking there about earthly kings, but how much more is it the case of the kingship of the Son of God where mercy and truth are met together in one king, the king of Psalm 45. When the psalmist reflects on all of these things, beloved, you'll notice that he extols all of these glories. He extols every one, every one of these attributes. And he comes in his conclusion really to say that he does all things. Well, this is Ryan's king. This is the king as he rules and he reigns over all. And so, friend, to be a witness, what we're told here is you must know, you must think over these things intently and in earnest. The psalmist certainly has given himself to these things certainly knows his subject well. And how much should we? But secondly, not only is it the case that he's instructed, he's inclined to that which he sees. His heart, that is, his whole man, his very core, is exercised in the work. The psalmist is genuinely affected by his subject, and below it, as we think of this, we need to recognize that witnesses themselves must be warm to Christ's royal glory. And this perhaps is the warning to covenanters. Friend, the devils profess and they say much about Christ. Luke 4, they proclaim, Thou art Christ, the Son of God. Take the crowds, crying, Hosanna, blessed is the King of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord, who in just seven days' time will say, We have no king but Caesar. Many will make bold professions about the kingship of Christ. And yet genuinely from their heart. They are not loyal subjects. They are people who will say much about this crown. But have no heart for it. But to put it positively, friend. How are we supposed to think about our disposition toward this subject? Take just, for example, the words of the Apostle. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above Where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on earth. Friend, I want you to notice, as we look at that text, I think very often we see there the words, things above, as almost being abstracted. But we can't remove them from Christ. The very next line is, where Christ sitteth. That is, where he sits enthroned. If we're going to set our affection on things above, it is really As we look at the person of Jesus Christ. As we look at Him. That is where our affections are to be placed. Our affection is for Him and all that is His. That's the calling of the believer. And below it is the very self same thing you have in the text. You have here the man saying that his heart is genuinely moved. When he thinks of his enthroned Messiah. Psalm one hundred and forty-nine, second verse: Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. That's a command that we see emulated for us even in our text this evening. But thirdly, and finally, we find here that it's not just the case that the man's inward parts are moved. But I want you to notice that as you look at that word "inditing," it is a striking thing. As I said before, it means to be stirred. It means to be genuinely moved. But as you look at that throughout the Old Testament, you'll find that references like Leviticus 2 and Leviticus 7 use that self-same word to describe sacrifices made in the frying pan. Sacrifices that were boiled. Ainsworth, I think quite helpfully, draws the connection between those moments in redemptive history and our psalm. Really what the psalmist is saying is, here I have an oblation. It's the same kind of thing you have in Psalm 141 too. Where the psalmist is saying, the words that I'm given here are a kind of oblation. By the way, that of course immediately reminds us that this is not of course referring at all to Solomon. This is a sacrifice offered to God. A sacrifice in words. An oblation in psalm. But the sense here is that this is, this is a psalm that is offered with vigor and solemnity. He is genuinely stirred, but in the most religious and holy way. He is not enthusiastic, as we saw before, without knowledge. He is a man who knows his subject well and is appropriately affected. He is a man who, through holiness, seeks to praise God. And the testimony that he gives, this oblation, as it were, that he provides, is one that is then fervently and gravely given And for us, friend, the same is true. Witnesses must render a vigorous testimony for Christ's kingship. The word euangelion, of course, is often translated good news. And as we saw before just months ago now, that word throughout the New Testament, of course, speaks primarily, of course, about the preaching of the apostles. But as you look at that word as as it was used outside of the New Testament, you'll notice that that is a word that was used primarily to describe the best news that a kingdom might receive. And so, you have evangelists for the Roman Empire or for any other kingdom stand in the center square of a town or of a city and proclaim their euangelion, their good news, their great news. What do the apostles do? Friend, they go to the city place. They go they go and they proclaim a Evangelion, telling them that there is a king, and his name is Jesus Christ. When we look at the preaching of the apostles, that's something we can't miss. Something that those who were hearing them in the first century would have quickly discerned. They were testifying very clearly to their king in every regard it was a solemn testimony and certainly a testimony fervently made and beloved that's certainly an example that we are to follow silence in such a cause is contempt coldness when we would offer praise over such a subject is nothing less than treason and so testimony to Christ's glory must be quickly must be fervently given as we seek to press his royal prerogatives in our generation. But as we close, just two points of application. As we look at the psalmist, we note here that he's a man who is eager over a scene. You might even say jealous. Are we jealous over such a subject? Is this something that really moves us, really grips us? Is the kingship of Jesus Christ? That which is principally extolled in the psalm. Is that something that has our hearts? You see, friend, another way to ask that is, well, at what cost are you willing to relinquish it? George Martin, on the 22nd of February, 1684, said this. I could not own nor allow the present government as it is now established Because it is derogatory to the crown and kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. and robbing him of his royal prerogatives. That statement hastened him to the gallows. He was so jealous over the very theme of our soul. But in terms of exhortation and comfort that is derived even from this first verse. Allow me to give you another example from history now 1685 the man's name was Robert Miller. he was a bricklayer he was not not a theologian he was not trained in any seminary he was a bricklayer who on the 23rd of January 1685 was executed and in his assessment why was he killed here is a statement Oh, praise, praise and glory to him who hath taken this way of dealing with me, as to honor me with suffering for him and his controverted truths and royal prerogatives, kingdom and scepter. You see, friend, he's so eager at this stage, so eager to see this king extolled, his royal prerogatives pressed, that he actually finds cause to praise that he might suffer for such a theme. But why I'm reading this to you. Is actually the line that follows. To those who would be left. He writes this. Fear not to venture upon the cross of Christ. For although ye see. But the backside of it at the beginning. Yet when ye come to a trial. Upon his truth's account. Then he will appear. And be a present help. In time of trouble. According to his word. And the more sharp your trial be, the more he will be seen perfecting his strength in your weakness. What Robert Miller says there is just this to take an interest in the crown rights and royal prerogatives of Jesus Christ, to be so affected that you would be willing to lay down your life for that cause you will find that the king who employs you is a king who strengthens, a king who comforts, a king who furnishes all of his subjects and his emissaries, all that is necessary for this life and the life to come. A king that you and I should be so eager to praise. A kingship that you and I should think of and speak of much. And may we be such people, even here in our oh,